Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardiners. We are here for another amazing CNCR episode with colleagues from Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. We got Dr. Hanad Bashir, Dr. Hansu Chang, and Dr. Dahlia Aziz. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Folks, can you introduce yourselves? Thank you so much for having us, Cardiners. My name is Hanad Bashir. I'm a second year cardiology fellow at the Christ Hospital. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, and I'm completing my residency training at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. I'm super thrilled to be here, especially alongside my co-fellows. Hi, my name is Dahlia Aziz. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I did my internal medicine training at the Christ Hospital, and I'm very excited to be here. My name is Hyunsu Chung. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at the Christ Hospital. I'm a Korean-American that grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I completed my internal medicine residency training at Thomas Hospital, my medical school training at SUNY Downstate Medical Center, obtained a biomedical engineering degree at Cornell University. I've been a huge fan of the show for many years, and I'm excited for the opportunity to be here. Well, we are definitely excited to have you all here. So let's just jump right over it. But before we do that, take me to your favorite place in Cincinnati so we can set the scene and get ready to discuss a great case of cardiology. Imagine, cardio nerds, we're sitting on a comfortable patio on a Cincinnati summer afternoon as the sun sets over the city skyline. You can see the iconic suspension bridge at the background. We are gathered at a cozy table outside a charming cafe in the heart of Over the Rhine, a historical neighborhood in downtown Cincinnati. The ambiance is relaxed with soft jazz music playing in the background and the aroma of Cincinnati's signature chili wafting through the air as we enjoy our raspberry chocolate chip ice cream from the local ice cream shop. Wow, Hanad, this is uh, extremely romantic, and I, uh, I, f- I have been transported. You definitely should take up writing as well. Quite a vivid, vivid description. And so with that, why don't we get started on our case? We have a 60-year-old female patient who presented to our facility following a syncopal episode. She had a past medical history for hypertension, hypothyroidism, secretory breast carcinoma that was estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor negative, HER2 negative, with a tumor size less than 20 millimeters and no metastasis to the lymph nodes. She underwent a left breast lumpectomy a year prior and sentinel lymph node dissection with negative margins. Her medications included cociferol 50 micrograms once daily, levothyroxine 175 micrograms once daily, metoprolol succinate 50 milligrams once daily, and tamoxifen 20 milligrams once daily. She started tamoxifen due to her estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and was intended to be on it for five years, having only been on it for a year. She had no known allergies, no history of tobacco abuse, alcohol use, or recreational drug use. She had experienced a similar episode of syncope a few weeks earlier, accompanied by dyspnea and lightheadedness. She presented to an outside emergency department at that time. On arrival, she was hemodynamically stable. Notably, her D-dimer was elevated at 863, while her high-sensitivity troponin remained within the normal range. Given her dyspnea, elevated D-dimer, and syncopal history, a chest CTA was performed to rule out an acute pulmonary embolism. The results were negative. 
She was discharged from that outside emergency department with a provisional diagnosis of potential orthostasis or vasovagal ideology for her syncope. So just to recap, we have a 60-year-old female with past medical history of hypertension, hypothyroidism, secretory breast carcinoma, who presented to the ED with recurrent syncope, dyspnea, and lightheadedness, with an elevated D-dimer was discharged after a negative CTA of the chest. Dahlia, what's the approach to a patient with syncope? So syncope is a quite broad topic, but to cover it briefly, it is a transient loss of consciousness secondary to reduced blood flow to the brain. Often, certain presentations are mislabeled as syncope, such as seizure disorders, post-traumatic loss of consciousness, and cataplexy. It's very important to have an organized diagnostic approach in order to reduce hospital admissions, medical costs, and increase your diagnostic accuracy. I find it very helpful to divide syncope into five general subgroups. Neurally mediated reflex syncope, orthostatic syncope, cardiac arrhythmias, structural cardiac and pulmonary causes, and cerebrovascular disorders. Keeping those five subgroups in mind, you should always start your initial evaluation with a thorough HMP, physical exam, including orthostatic vitals, and an ECG. If the diagnosis remains uncertain after the initial evaluation, patient syncope should be risk stratified into three groups, high, intermediate, and low risk. Additionally, in the 2017 ACC AHA HRS guidelines, they stratify patient risk based on short-term, which is less than 30 days, and long-term, longer than 30 days, morbidity or mortality based on the initial examination and history. Risk stratification is important because it guides management. Patients presenting with high-risk syncope features for short-term should be immediately hospitalized for further diagnostic testing and treatment. High-risk features are usually indicative of underlying cardiovascular cause that could lead to sudden cardiac death. This includes but is not limited to cardiac arrhythmias or acute coronary syndrome. Risk stratification also determines the selection of diagnostic tests you would be using. When underlying cardiac etiology suspected diagnostic tests such as echo, CT, angiography, cardiac MRI, electrophysiology studies, exercise stress testing, and coronary angiographies are very valuable in establishing timely diagnosis in high-risk patients. The choice of study modality varies greatly based on the patient's presentation and risk factors. In contrast to patients presenting with high-risk syncope, low-risk patients are discharged home with reassurance. Thanks, Dahlia. That's a great review. What happened to this patient next, Nud? So she followed up with her primary care physician who had ordered a Holter monitor and an echocardiograph. The Holter monitor results revealed a few ventricular tachycardic events, including the longest episode lasting only four beats and the fastest reaching 145 beats per minute. Otherwise, her average heart rate was 75 beats per minute with a minimal heart rate of 56 beats per minute. She also presented for her outpatient echocardiogram, which revealed a preserved ejection fraction of 60%. However, the echo also identified a mobile mass in the right atrium that raised suspicion of a thrombus. Consequently, the patient was advised to proceed to the emergency department for further evaluation. In the emergency department, a CT chest and CT abdomen and pelvis were obtained, which revealed a significant but motion-blurred tubular endoluminal filling defect, 
within the right atrium and ventricle, extending seamlessly into a long tapering IVC and its branches, including the right common iliac vein and internal iliac branch. Notably, the IVC exhibited substantial luminal compromise ranging from 50 to 75% occurring between the heart and the liver. Additionally, on the CT admin and pelvis, multiple clustered fundal fibroids were noted. Given these findings, the patient was initiated on a heparin drip and promptly transferred to our CCU for a higher level of care and further assessment. All right. Thank you, Hanad. So it sounds like we have a 60-year-old patient with history of breast cancer that presented with syncope, shortness of breath, and her workup had turned up positive for intracardiac mass. So Hyun-Soo, how would one evaluate patients with an intracardiac mass? So thanks, Dahlia. The strategy for intracardiac masses, a valuable resource, is an article published in 2020 in Jack Cardiac Oncology by Taibali et al. They discuss how to approach the diagnostic puzzle of cardiac masses, which can include tumors, thrombi, pericardial cysts, or even vegetations. The article discusses four major considerations when thinking about cardiac masses. The first is a patient's age at presentation. For instance, clinical entities like rhabdomyomas and fibromas tend to be more common in the pediatric population. Secondly, the article emphasizes considering epidemiological likelihood and clinical probability. For example, if a patient recently had an anterior wall MI with an akinetic left ventricular apex, the appearance of a cardiac mass on an echocardiogram might raise concerns about a left ventricular thrombus. Moving on to the third consideration, the location of the mass is important. Masses that arise from the valves might indicate thrombus or vegetation, whereas if they arise from the chambers, the differential includes myxomas, lymphomas, and even metastatic tumors. Lastly, tissue characterization is a final factor discussed in the article. Additional imaging modalities such as cardiac MRI can provide useful information about the nature of the mass. Therefore, the review by Taibali et al. serves as an excellent guide to navigating the complex realm of cardiac masses considering those four vital factors for a comprehensive diagnostic approach. Given our patient's history of secretory breast carcinoma, which could predispose her to a hypercoagulable state and suspicious mobile mass on echo slash CT, the patient was started on heparin to cover for the possibility of thrombus in transit, causing inflow obstruction, leading to syncope. I'm eager to hear more of the story from Hanad. What happened when they came to our facility? On admission to our facility, the patient was afebrile with a blood pressure of 128 over 93 millimeters of mercury. She was tachycardic with a heart rate of 104 beats per minute. The electrocardiogram showed sinus tachycardia with normal PR and QTC intervals, normal access without any acute ischemic changes. Her respiratory rate was 18 breaths per minute and she was saturating 95% on room air. On examination, she appeared to be in no acute distress. Her heart exam exhibited regular rhythm, however, did note a high-pitched holosystolic murmur best heard in the left lower sternal border that radiated to her right lower sternal border. Her pulmonary and chest examination showed normal respiratory effort and breath sounds with no wheezes, ronchi, or rails. The abdominal examination was also unremarkable. Her laboratory findings in our facility included a troponin I level of less than 0.01, an NT-proBNP level of 220 picograms per milliliter, 
and a normal lactate level. Her TSH was less than 0.01. However, her free T4 was within normal limits. A chest x-ray was obtained that showed no acute cardiopulmonary abnormalities. And of note, during her workup at our facility, she was noted to have elevated ketones. However, her acidosis improved with short-term bicarbonate treatment and proper nutrition. She later revealed a history of poor oral intake in the days leading up to her arrival. The rest of her BMP and CBC were within normal limits. A TEE was also obtained at our facility, which demonstrated a preserved ejection fraction. There was a massive multi-lobulated mass in the right atrium that appeared to originate from the IVC. There was also fragments prolapsing into the right ventricle through the tricuspid valve, leading to moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation. Dahlia, now that we have more information about our physical examination and laboratory findings, what additional imaging methods would you recommend to further assess the intracardiac mass? Certainly, Hanad, but first let's recap what happened to the patient since they came into our hospital. So it sounds like she had stable vitals besides mild tachycardia of 104. Her EKG was fairly unremarkable, and her physical exam was significant of a hollow systolic murmur. Her significant imaging finding was a very large, impressive mass in the right atrium going in and out of the tricuspid valve, causing moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation. So now we have a pretty good reason for her presenting symptoms. We have a very large mass causing an inflow obstruction, causing her syncope. So how do we further evaluate this mass? Which leads us to the imaging modalities that we could use. So there's a spectrum of options, ranging from transthoracic echo and transesophageal echo to cardiac MRI, cardiac CT, and positron emission tomography. TTE is often favored because it's widespread ability and non-invasive nature. TEE comes into play when we're suspecting valvular lesions or atrial masses. It offers insight into the size, shape, attachment site, extension, and hemodynamic effects. Ultrasound-enhancing agents in echocardiography enable quantitative perfusion imaging, aiding in the differentiation of various facets. This includes Distinguishing thrombi, which display a non-enhancing pattern from malignancies that demonstrate a hyper-enhancing pattern. Highly vascular malignant tumors like sarcomas or hemangiomas demonstrate greater enhancement than the surrounding myocardium. Benign tumors such as myxomas are less vascular and display lower perfusion. Advanced echo lets us gauge the hemodynamic impact using Doppler velocities as well. And 3D echo combined with TEE provides more detailed view of the mass's shape, location, and features compared to traditional 2D echo alone. Moving on to cardiac MRI, CMR is invaluable when echo findings alone fall short. CMR is exceptional at analyzing soft tissue properties, evaluating the dimensions, structure, consistency of masses, and their interaction with nearby tissues. Information from signal sequences like T1, T2, early and late gadolinium enhancement unveil characteristics such as fatty presence, necrosis, bleeding, inflammation, and vascularity within a mass. Notably, early gadolinium enhancement is especially effective in detecting thrombi. Cardiac CT steps in as another strong contender. 
boasting high spatial and temporal resolution, multi-planar image reconstruction, and rapid acquisition. Its broad field of view enables evaluation of chest, lung tissue, vascular structures, and potential masses within the chest. Surgical approaches, coronary artery involvement, and calcifications can be assessed too. Unlike MRI, CT can detect calcifications within the mass, although it has less soft tissue resolution and subjects the patient to radiation. And finally, PET stands as another essential tool gauging tumors' metabolic activity. When CT alone doesn't decisively determine benign or malignant nature, PET-CT steps in, aiding in malignancy diagnosis and guiding biopsy locations, staging, and cancer therapy planning. So as you can see, each modality serves a unique purpose in diagnosing, managing, and monitoring cardiac masses. Typically, a multimodal strategy is employed, as we'll see in our ongoing case. Now that we've discussed variable available imaging techniques for assessing cardiac masses, I see why Hyun Su might consider the possibility of a thrombus. However, I do have concerns that this could be an actual cardiac mass and potentially a tumor, particularly given her history of breast cancer, or it could be related to another type of cancer, possibly uterine, based on her pelvic CT scan results. Excellent point, Dahlia. Now, before I continue with the case, let's kind of shift our focus to kind of discuss briefly of cardiac tumors. When considering cardiac tumors, we can generally categorize them into two groups, primary and secondary cardiac tumors. Secondary cardiac tumors are those that have metastasized to the heart. And I want to emphasize that they are much, much more common than primary cardiac tumors. Consider secondary cardiac tumors in patients with a cardiac mass with a history of conditions such as metastatic melanoma, breast cancer, or lung cancer. How they present will depend on how these cells reach the heart. Potentially, they can cause pericardial involvement, resulting in pericardial fusion and cardiac tamponade, or infiltration of the myocardium and valves, leading to obstruction or embolization. They can also spread hematogenously through the lymphatic and venous system. Now let's shift our focus to primary cardiac tumors. They are generally divided into two categories, benign and malignant. They comprise of 80 to 20% of primary cardiac tumors, respectively. Primary malignant tumors are predominantly sarcomas, which can be further categorized into angiosarcoma, rhabdomyosarcoma, fibrosarcoma, and leiomyosarcomas. In addition, there have been reports of primary lymphomas and perigangliomas. Primary benign cardiac tumors include myxomas, which are the most common. These myxoma cells are scattered within their mucopolysaccharide core, giving them a gelatinous appearance. Think of a pedunculated structure attached to the left atrium, although the location of cardiac myxomas can vary. Then there are papillary fibroblastomas, usually found on the valves and typically present on the left side of the heart. These two are usually pedunculated masses with frond-like structures protruding from their core. Next are lipomas, comprised of fat cells, typically found in the subendocardial layer, affecting the conduction system, but they can present on valves or any part of the heart. Fibromas consist of fibroblasts and are mostly found in the left ventricle, while rhabdomyomas are made of underdeveloped cardiac myocytes and usually present in the ventricle. 
Other types of tumors include Purkinje cell tumors, which are exceedingly rare. Still, the latter three that I mentioned are much more common in the pediatric population. Phew. Thanks, Anad. That was a thorough overview of cardiac tumors. What happened next with our patient? Was it a tumor or a thrombus? Our working differential diagnosis was clotting transit for our patient, but this could have been a tumor. Ideally, we could have gone a cardiac MRI for further evaluation of this mass to help differentiate between the two. But she needed more emergent management due to the large size of the mass and her signs and symptoms suggesting of life-threatening inflow obstruction. There is no definitive guidelines for the treatment of clot in transit. Clot in transit is defined as the presence of a mobile echogenic material in the right atrium or right ventricle. Treatment decisions should be made by a case-by-case basis, and management plans should include or consider individual patient factors such as hemodynamic stability, RV function, the presence of PFO, and the presence of malignancy. Intervention options for clotting transit include catheter-based thrombolysis, IV thrombolysis, surgical endovascular thrombectomy, and anticoagulation therapy. Catheter-based thrombolysis involves high-frequency ultrasound exposure near the clot surface, catheter-directed thrombolysis, mechanical thrombectomy, and endovascular clot suction. These have high success rates but potential limitations for bulky thrombi. Surgical embolectomy is recommended for hemodynamically unstable patients, but it involves substantial surgery and cardiopulmonary bypass. Anticoagulants are an option for clotting transit patients in whom surgery is contraindicated. Although they do not affect existing clots, they may lead to bleeding or thrombus fragmentation. And lastly, systemic thrombolysis can improve RV function, reduce pulmonary hypertension, and dissolve clots in multiple locations, but carries a high risk of thrombus embolization. So in our case, there was a multidisciplinary meeting with interventional radiology and cardiothoracic surgery. After a discussion with the family about the possible therapies for the clot in transit, the decision was made to proceed with IR mechanical thrombectomy. Interventional radiology felt that the patient was a good candidate for endovascular intervention. Initially, angiovac was attempted but unsuccessful. For those who don't know, AngioVac is a vacuum-operated device that removes large clots. It is used with extracorporeal circulatory support to remove fresh, soft thrombi, emboli, or vegetations in the right atrium and ventricle, superior and inferior vena cava, and iliofemoral veins. After two attempts with the AngioVac, the procedure was aborted. We went back to the drawing board, and the decision was made for cardiothoracic surgery for surgical thrombectomy. But prior to that, a coronary angiogram was completed to ensure no significant coronary disease, which showed angiographically normal coronary arteries. Later that day, the patient underwent cardiothoracic surgery. That was a wonderful summary, Hanad. So what did they end up finding? Notably, they found a mass in the right atrium extending all the way down the IVC, seemingly attached to it. Once freed, the entire mass was removed. Additionally, there was a small mass found in the tricuspid valve situated between the posterior and anterior leaflets, but attached to the papillary muscles. This was also resected in its entirety. On gross examination, the mass was a cylindrical shape, homogeneous tan color, rubbery soft tissue, 
measuring 25.5 centimeters in length and 2.3 centimeters in diameter. The mass was sent to pathology and later histology confirmed it to be an angioliomyoma. A second smaller mass was removed from the tricuspid valve with histology consistent with a leiomyoma. Given the presence of uterine fibroids identified on the CT abdomen and pelvis, there was a concern about a uterine origin. Estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor staining were strongly positive on path images, leading to the discontinuation of tamoxifen. Subsequently, the patient had a relatively unremarkable course with plans for a hysterectomy in the near future. She has experienced no further dyspnea or syncopal episodes and is doing well as of today. Hyansu, can you talk a little bit about angioliomyomas? Sure, Anad. Angioliomyomas are a rare benign tumor classified as parasitic, perivascular, soft tissue tumors. The incidence and prevalence of these tumors lack a consensus, with some reports suggesting they account for approximately 5% of benign soft tissue tumors. Women are more frequently affected than men, and diagnosis typically occurs in the fourth to sixth decade of life. These tumors commonly originate in the extremities, particularly the lower extremities, although their prevalence in uterine, cardiac, and major vascular locations like the inferior vena cava are unknown. Clinical symptoms vary based on the tumor's location and size. In the extremities, patients often experience discomfort due to the presence of nodules. In some cases, angioliomyomas in the lung have caused dyspnea. When affecting the uterus, patients may present with symptoms such as menorrhagia, abdominal pain, or the presence of an abdominal mass, which can be submucosal, intramural, or subserosal. In instances of excessive growth in the IVC in the right heart, hemodynamic limitations may occur, leading to symptoms like dyspnea and syncope. The pathophysiology of angioliomyomas remains a subject of debate, with hypotheses including trauma to the area, venous stasis, and hormonal factors contributing to abnormal cell growth. Histologically, they are characterized into capillary type, venous type, and cavernous type. While imaging techniques such as echocardiography, CT scans, and MRI can help evaluate the characteristics of these masses, a definitive diagnosis requires pathological examination. The primary treatment for angioliomyomas involves surgical excision of the tumor, which has proven effective in preventing recurrence. However, caution should be exercised in cases where medications could potentially stimulate the tumor's proliferation. That was a great explanation, Hyunsu. Thank you. So let's summarize some takeaway points. Evaluation of cardiac masses by echocardiography can provide information such as size, location, and morphology. Further imaging modalities may be used depending on the need for further temporal resolutions for CT or mass characteristics via T1, T2, and gadolin enhancement used with MRI. Second takeaway point, tamoxifen is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It's used for breast cancer therapy. However, its use has been associated with endometrial hypoplasia, uterine fibroids, and endometrial and uterine malignancies. There is an increased risk of malignancy that has been seen more often in postmenopausal women and is dose-dependent and time-dependent. Third takeaway point is clot in transit. It's a mobile thrombus within the right heart structures. It is estimated to occur in 4% to 18% of patients with pulmonary embolism, 
and is associated with elevated morbidity and mortality. Treatments include surgical embolectomy, endovascular embolectomy, thrombolysis, catheter-directed thrombolysis, or anticoagulation. And finally, angioliomyoma is a rare benign pericystic tumor which most commonly affects the extremities. There are case reports of other affected sites, including the uterus. Invasion into cardiac structures is extremely rare, which makes our case very interesting. And the only established treatment for it is surgical resection. Hanad, Hansu, Dahlia, that was a masterclass presentation. We learned a ton about your patient. We learned a ton about your hospital and the great management of a patient like this. And ultimately, I'm really glad to hear that she's doing well and the diagnosis has been made. And so we cannot thank you enough for presenting this case and taking care of this patient. So thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for allowing us to participate in your amazing podcast. I just want to take the opportunity now to briefly talk about our fellowship program for a minute. Christ Hospital holds a special place in our hearts, and it's the main reason why we are all here today. Our experience goes beyond the exceptional opportunity to work with world-renowned and very approachable attendings. It extends to the remarkable volume of cases that we encounter, from the CCU and the management of mechanical support devices to managing beds and cardiac transplantation on our heart failure service. This exposure introduces us to a wide range of diverse pathologies and enables us to actively participate in groundbreaking clinical trials, even as general cardiology fellows. Our program offers numerous opportunities to explore various aspects of cardiology. We can also pursue levels two and three training in multiple imaging modalities, including cardiac CT, cardiac MRI, echo, and nuclear medicine. This comprehensive training equips us to not only become proficient cardiologists, but also provides a strong foundation if we choose subspecialty training in the future. I believe I can speak for all of us when I can say that we are all extremely excited to be the pioneer badge, trailblazing this new path and help shape the future of the Christ Hospital. And now for our ECPR segment for this episode, we introduce Dr. Wojciech Mazur. Dr. Mazur serves as our advanced cardiac imaging director and the director for our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy clinic here at the Christ Hospital. He is an invaluable asset to our cardiology fellowship program by offering exceptional leadership, mentoring, but above all, he enriches the educational experience for us fellows. Thank you very much for inviting me to this episode of CardioNerds. I'm Dr. Wojciech Mazur. I'm director of advanced cardiac imaging. This is a very unusual case, and I would like to just review our approach to cardiac mass. First thing could be tumor, could be thrombus, could be vegetation, could be structural issue. Number one, make sure that this is not the normal structure, such as hypertrophy crista terminalis or coumadin ridge. Then make sure we're not dealing with a benign variant. Most common benign variant which we see in cardiac MRI is lipomatous acroceptor hypertrophy, which was misinterpreted as cardiac tumor. Those are very obvious findings, typically asymptomatic, can be uh, quite extensive and sparse fossil valve. It can extend all the way to superior vena cava, occasionally compressing it. Other pseudotumor is liquefaction necrosis of mitral annular calcification, which is in a typical posterior mitral annular location, doesn't give legal enhancement except for capsule has low T2 intensity, slightly enhanced T1 intensity. It's important to recognize this pathology as surgery can be fatal. And then 
clinical scenario, keep in mind that most of the tumors are metastatic. They are between 22 and 132 times more likely to be metastatic than primary. It is very unusual to see metastatic tumor without somebody who already has history of uh, malignancy. Occasionally, pericardial effusion can be the presenting symptoms. Most of the primary tumors, thankfully, are benign. 10% of primary tumors are malignant. Everything also depends on patient age. Uh, in pediatric population, number one is rhabdomyoma followed by fibromas versus in adult, number one is myxomas followed by uh, lipomas. And let's switch uh, gear to talk about role of advanced cardiac imaging modalities. We'll start the basic, of course, advanced echocardiography. Just to make the diagnosis, see what chamber is involved, and also hemodynamic effect. Is that mitral inflow obstructed, tricuspid inflow obstructed, is the LVOT obstructed? Does it impair valvular function? Cardiac magnetic resonance, we'll spend more time talking about this, but it uh, provides us with tissue characteristic as well as uh, allows us to distinguish from benign, benign versus invasive behavior. Computed tomography, uh, I would say, has a limited value, except maybe for presence of classification and general anatomy. And of course, PET. PET is very useful to differentiate between malignant versus benign lesion, but mainly for staging and optimized biopsy location, as well as planning of radiotherapy. Cardiac MRI is really incredible technology to assess cardiac masses. We look at several parameters. Size, anything more than uh, five centimeter is suggestive of presence of a malignant uh, mass. Number, more than one malignant. Location, right heart involvement or more than one chamber, more likely to be malignant. Broad base of implantation. Direct infiltration of structures such as myocardiums, epicardial fat, pericardial leaflets, definitely malignant. Effusion can be seen in both benign and malignant cardiac tumors. However, hemorrhagic effusion will be seen predominantly in malignant tumors. Signal intensity. It is sometimes helpful, sometimes not. Typically in malignant lesions is heterogeneous T1 and T2. And the reason for heterogeneity is malignant masses grow so rapidly that the vascular supply is outstripped by the tissue growth resulting in local necrosis. Perfusion, first pass perfusion. Typically benign tumors are not vascular versus malignant tumors are highly vascular. And heterogeneous perfusion will be seen because of course areas of necrosis are not being perfused. And the important issue is also late gadolinium enhancement. A couple issues about T1 and T2. T2 is mainly for edema imaging. T1 typically in metastatic lesions is uh, reduced except for one particular condition, which is metastatic malignant melanoma. A melanin is a pigment which captures different metallic cations such as iron, copper, magnesium, which reduce T1 duration of the tissue. You cannot rely on individual parameter to make the diagnosis of malignant versus benign lesion. For example, we know that first pass perfusion is strong determinant of malignancy. However, 
benign hemangioma cell vascular malformation will have the same thing. We also know that extensive leg enhancement is seen in malignant lesions. On the other hand, fibromas, which are benign, would have a very extensive leg enhancement. To summarize this short presentation, most important thing is tissue. As I learned in the residency, tumor is the rumor, tissue is the issue, cancer is the answer. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Adriana Maris, intern in the CardioNerds Academy, House Chalcic, and student researcher at Yale Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardinerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.